wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, City Church. My name is uh, Christian Hempel. I'm an elder here, and I am humbled and excited to preach the word this morning. How are we doing on the sound? We're good? All right. Uh, Let me pray really quickly. Dear Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and honoring and glorifying to you, our Lord and our Redeemer. Amen. I'm going to start by saying the word hero. Who comes to mind for you? Who's your hero? What do you think about? I could rattle off a lot of worldly heroes. Okay, get ready. Um, We could talk about Tiger Woods or Coach K, not choosing sides, I'm just saying. Uh, We could talk about Jeff Bezos in the business world. If Scott were here, I'd mention Bono. Of course, he's a hero, right? Um, Is Harry Potter a hero? I think so. Sam and Frodo in Lord of the Rings. I'm personally more of a Sam guy, actually. He was pretty incredible. Um, Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman for the young people that are now upstairs. And then um, in the real world, right? Abraham Lincoln, a hero. Martin Luther King Jr., a hero. Those are the faith. C.S. Lewis, Luther. Growing up, one of my heroes was James Bond. The guy was so amazing. He was sophisticated and cool, and he could do everything in the tuxedo or in the jungle or in a fighter plane, and he never died. I was like, I want to be like that guy. And I think that's why one of the reasons Top Gun Maverick has blown through a billion dollars of revenue. Why? We love these old-fashioned hero stories. Some Some person with incredible talent does the extraordinary and beats the bad guys, and everybody feels good when they walk out of the movie. That's why we... Some of us have seen it a few times. The definition of a hero is a mythical or legendary figure, often of divine descent, endowed with great strength and ability. Someone with great courage. We're all drawn to heroes. And so now, in this series, we are seeing, savoring, and showing Jesus. And this scene in Matthew 4 has been so encouraging for me to prepare and and to study, because I want us to see that Jesus encounters Satan, he beats him at his own game, He shows us how to do it, and he gives us the power to do it ourselves. 
So I want us to walk away here truly inspired by how incredible and amazing Jesus is in this, in this scene, how powerful he is in mind and spirit, and how he's our ultimate hero. He's not just a good example. He actually did something that we couldn't do. And because of this, we should leave here as raving fans that is driven to worship and adoration of Jesus for life. And the secret to a hero's power is this. It's what they trust in. Think about it. Every hero story is they have some sort of special power, and they trust that power to beat and win versus the other person. And it's betting on, will the power succeed or fail? And I think we see here in Jesus, he is trusting in God as his power and not in Satan. So, three points to our sermon this morning. One, why do we need a hero? Two, what do we need saving from? And then three, how our ultimate hero saves us. And I've got a good amount of slides and got a good amount of scripture, and so let's follow along and jump in. Point number one, why do we need a hero? It's all here in verses one and two. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. We see here everything we need to know about the arena, the villain, and the battle lines. First, the arena. This is a spiritual battle, not a physical one. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And every temptation starts in the mind and the heart, not the body. Now, this cosmic standoff didn't include fire, fire being sent and laser beams and people thrown through the air and all that. It was simply a battle of wills. Whose will would prevail, God's or Satan's? And how would Jesus trust? Bit of context here. Right before this in chapter 3, uh, Jesus had been baptized in the Jordan River. He had been waiting 30 years for his ministry to begin. He started attracting followers. And then after he comes up out of the water, he sees and hears a spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice coming from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Talk about affirmation. Talk about uh, a word of encouragement. Jesus, our hero, was ready to go. And imagine just the symbolism, power, and beauty of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all in one spot. It must have been so encouraging to him. But right after this, Jesus disappears, and he goes into the desert for 40 days to be tempted. Not the way I would have done it, but we learn that God's ways are not our ways. Now, you might read this and think, wow, this was just a really intense silent retreat gone badly. Or a nice-to-have sort of prelude before the real ministry work begins. But I actually would say it is so much more than that. Because Jesus keeps his Satan in his place. He has effectively sealed his plan for salvation for us. And he creates a way for us to be reconciled to him. Ephesians 6 says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic power over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. That's the battle that we are engaged in. Now, God saw that it was uh, beneficial to allow this temptation to take place. Jesus needed to validate his readiness of physical control, yet keeping his spiritual power. And temptation is part of the way God sanctifies us. It feels difficult, but it is so true. But we have comfort in James chapter 1. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet the trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So, 
spiritual battle is the one we should be engaged in. Second, why do we need a hero? Because Satan is the real villain. He is real, he is amazing, he is intelligent, and he is powerful and he's beautiful. And God gave him so many gifts and talents that it went to his head, he became so prideful, he thought he could take over for God. And now he's a roaring lion seeking people to devour. His appetite for death is never quenched, his motivation is destruction, and he wants to disrupt God's will. And this is the person we need safety from. We need protection from Satan because alone we can't handle him. We are not equipped. Isaiah tells us how Lucifer fell and what his motivation is. Lucifer, it says here in uh, Isaiah 14, Lucifer, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. His pride drove him to this unyielding ambition, thinking he could be higher than God. So if we recognize the unholiness of Satan, I think it helps us make a clear choice about who do we trust and why we need a hero to beat him. Do you believe this? Do you, do you believe that Satan and demons are real? They are. Now, funny story. When I was a kid, I absolutely believed in hell, but for the wrong reason. Do you remember that 80s song? Um, give me that 80s song that goes like this from... Uh, um, I can't think here. Oh, the Men at Work, Land Down Under. Do you remember that song? Anything from Land Down Under? Okay. Well, I always thought it was about hell. I didn't think about it was Australia. <laughs> because if you're a six or seven-year-old, think about it. It talks about, you know, the hippie trail and zombie and women glowing and you hear the thunder and are you trying to tempt me, right? I mean, I was like, oh my gosh, totally. It was always real for me. Apologies for any Australians in the room. But for that silly reason, but for the scriptural reason, we know that Satan is real. All right, third reason we need a hero. Sin's temptation tests who we trust. All right, Jesus went to be tempted. He went to be tested. And every test comes down to this one question. Who do you trust, God or Satan? And we always trust in something. We need to be honest about what it is. As contrast, in Genesis 3, the first Adam failed temptation in a beautiful, perfect garden with food and comfort. And there, Satan tempted Adam and Eve to do what? place their will above God's. Now here, Jesus is the second Adam, and in a hot, dry, uninviting desert, after fasting for 40 days, he succeeds. And the key is not the circumstances, but the character of the individual being tested. And Jesus shows here how trustworthy he truly is. I like this quote from Oswald Chambers about sin. It says here, Sin has made the foundation of our thinking unpredictable, uncontrollable, and irrational. We have to recognize that sin is a fact of life, not just a shortcoming. Sin is blatant mutiny against God, and either sin or God must die in my life. So, we have a spiritual arena. We have a fight against a real powerful, nasty, evil, strong villain. And we have a choice about who do we trust. All right, so let's see how this plays out. What do we need saving from? In verses 3 through 9, Jesus is tempted three ways. And each time... He shows us how to escape. But whether we're adults in the room or we're kids going back to school or wherever, we always are tempted by these three things. Number one, physical desires in verse three. Number two, fame and adoration of others. And three, power and control. Those are the three ways that we are tempted to trust in things other than God's will. So 
Let's jump in here at the first one. Test number one. If you are the son of God, verses three and four, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So test number one is trusting physical desires to supersede God's will. Now, Satan always starts by casting doubt on God's word. He says to Eve in Genesis 3, did not God say not to eat of this? Is that really what he said? And he says to Jesus here, if you are the son of God, always casting a bit of a doubt on God's word. But this test was not just for Jesus to use his power to solve his physical needs. Satan is suggesting that his hunger was not compatible with God's will. He's saying something like, hold on, something must be wrong with this plan. You've been here for 40 days and you're abandoned. You need to do something about this, Jesus. If you're a creator God, you shouldn't be living like this. You deserve better. And this was the same temptation that Jesus heard during the crucifixion in Matthew 27 when they said to him, if you're the son of God, come down from the cross. This would have been against God's will and plan. God was saying, I have a plan to feed you. Dinner's coming. Just not yet. Almost. Just not yet. I've got you. Now, this, this reference is coming from Exodus 17, when the Israelites are in the desert and they're demanding water. And they blame Moses for coming and bringing them out of Egypt and saying, you brought us out here to die. And they said, is the Lord among us or not? They're kind of saying, not. And so God provided by making Moses strike a rock, having water come out. But this was forcing God's hand. And in the same way, if Jesus had done what Satan was asking, it would have been demanding God's good promises with impure motives. In other places, Jesus feeds lots of people, 5,000, 4,000 people. He can do this. This was not about, can he do it? But it was about Jesus seeking his own glory and not serving others or extending the gospel of Jesus. So that is the difference. Philippians 4 says, My God will supply every need according to his riches. And in Matthew 6, I love this verse, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. And then in Galatians 5, we read, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So the simple and obvious fact, physical and food and clothing and other things are not that important. Spiritual health is, and God provides. So in terms of application, I like this insight from Dr. Scott Roden. I'll probably put it up on the screen here. We're usually content to trust God with the what. That is, we trust God to provide for our needs, deliver us in times of trouble, show us the direction he wants us to go, and so forth. The challenge is trusting him just as much with the when and the how. And it's usually somewhere in God's timing, or in the timing of God's response, and the way he chooses to respond where the real faith is required. We need to think about all the big and the little things where we decide whether we trust God or not. The big things, when are we going to have children? When are we going to get married? How will I get the right job and will it pay enough? Can the kids get in the right college? And how can we retire on this 401k balance? Those are big things that we need to trust God in. 
But I'm also, I was also um, really struck by the little things this week. When you get locked out of your Gmail account, or when there's traffic, or somebody cancels an appointment on you, or there's no paper towels at the grocery store. Like, are you trusting and showing the fruits of the Spirit in the little things as well as the big things? To reference Dan's incredibly excellent sermon last Sunday when he preached on Hagar, we scheme to get what we want, when we want it, how we want it, when our will is not aligned with God's will. So, very famous Proverbs, chapter 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So, our physical desires and needs get in the way of trusting God. All right, test number two. Trusting adoration from others instead of believing God's true word. Let's read verses 5 through 7. Then the devil took him to the holy city and sat him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. All right, so we have a change of venues here. Most commentators believe this was a physical visit of Jesus and Satan going to Jerusalem. And according to Josephus, the pinnacle of the temple was about 450 feet high from the top to the very bottom of the Kidron Valley. It's like 50 stories. That's a, that's a big, tall spot. It was the highest spot in the entire land. And think about this scene. What would Jesus have seen? He would have looked over and remembered as a 12-year-old being in the temple for three days with the scribes would have looked over and saw Gethsemane, where he was going to spend all this time with his disciples. He would have seen the whole city that three years later he would weep over before going to the cross. And then he would have looked over and saw Golgotha, the place where the crucifixion was going to take place. Satan is saying, don't do this. Don't follow plan A. I've got a plan B, and it is so much better. And then Satan's really tricky. He starts twisting scripture. It's Psalm 91, which we read in the official... King James Version and uh, accent from Ian. Thank you. Psalm 91, which starts with, He dwells in the shelter of the Most High, will abide in the shout of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And then 11 and 12, For he will not command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Verse 14, Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. This is very clever. Satan is saying, prove that you trust the Father's will. But the problem is this. This was not going to deliver what Satan promises. Satan is twisting God's word because Jesus ended up doing thousands of miracles during his ministry. But if he had done this, this would have been like a publicity stunt. This would have been a magic show. And it wouldn't have changed hearts. Miracles rarely change the heart of a non-believer. And when we test God, we essentially doubt his word, and we lack trust, and we lack faith. This would have first forced God to serve the Son, and not the Son to serve the Father. It's like this inverse Lord's Prayer, my will be done, not your will be done. And look here, later in the book of Matthew, Matthew 16, we see this theme. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things, from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. 
this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Don't you see? Even Peter, with a physical relationship with the actual Messiah, gets confused and gets distracted by God's will. From a worldly perspective, the crucifixion was an utter disaster. It was a total train wreck, total failure. But from God's perspective, the crucifixion was triumph. That's because his ways are not our ways. Where do we test God? Where do we seek approval of others versus finding our identity in him? I think we all need to confess we are all subject to peer pressure from somebody. I'd ask you to think about who's that at least one person that has that power over you? A parent or a friend, certainly a spouse perhaps, or a boss, co-workers, neighbors, maybe your pastor. For me, this is an area of confession, mainly around my boss. I'm an Enneagram 3. I want you to like me. I want you to feel that I'm competent, that I know what I'm doing, that I deserve to be here. So that is going to skew how I approach my boss, how I'm going to say things that might um, change or cloud my objectivity, my motives, or my speech. I need to confess that. Who's that peer pressure person that we're trying to please? And then the other thing I'll say is in prayer. Do we pray? How do we pray? How long do we pray? What do you pray for? Do you ask for the Lord's will in prayer? Or do you share your plan? That's what I like to do. I like to share my plan with God. Dear Lord, I pray that this would happen at this time, and, and if this could happen too, that'd be great, ideally by Thursday. Okay? That's my temptation. But when we say, oh, please heal somebody in this exact way, really? God might be doing something. Or please give me this new job. Really? I've got a better job for you. I just, they need three more months. Or, please make this specific choice for this specific person. Really? I love this Tim Keller quote. Couldn't do it without at least quoting him once. God will either give us what we ask for in prayer, or he gives us what we would have asked for if we knew everything that he knows. Final thing I'll say here on this. When God doesn't answer prayer, there is always a reason. Always. He is doing something. You just don't know what it is yet. There's comfort in that. Let's look at test number three. Trusting power and control by serving the world and not God's kingdom. Verses 8 through 10. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written... You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. All right, scene change again. They walk up to a high mountain, and this was likely a vision of all the kingdoms on earth. Rome, Egypt, Athens, ancient India, ancient China, and maybe even not just present, but future. This was palaces and throne rooms, armies and weapons, governments, people, lands, livestock, all the glory that a king of kings would deserve. This is the full definition of mammon. And this was a desperate attempt for Satan just to get what he wants. He's saying, change sides, change allegiances. Take what is yours right now, no waiting, no suffering. The outcome will be the same, which is a lie, but the path will be so much easier. 
but his terms were very different. This was a worldly task, and it seems to justify and satisfy, but it never does. This was the right goal, but the wrong way to get there. And have you heard the end justifies the means? Have you heard that? Doesn't. It's a text. Now, God is meant to be the object of worship. Satan was saying, break commandment number one. I mean, talk about blatant. He's just like, okay, take off the gloves. Exodus 20, you shall have no other gods before me. And I think it's so ironic because Jesus made all this stuff. I mean, the devil is selling something he doesn't really own. That's why he's a deceiver. He's a liar. Remember in the garden, Satan told Eve, you won't die. And you can still get everything you want, including being like God. But like a forgery, it looks good, but it never performs. If Jesus had taken the easy way, he would have lost all the power and credibility that Satan promised. He would have failed his mission as our Savior. No one can serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. And Matthew 16, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? For application, where do we feel tempted to cut corners to get the right things the wrong way? Where do we go, I put it here, all worldly on people in different environments? Two areas I think this shows up. One, for me, it, I would point out is career. And this is something I know a little bit about. Playing the corporate ladder professional ambition game. Sometimes I confess, I'll go to battle mode when I'm, when I'm in the work environment. It's almost as if I leave my faith at the door or at the beginning of the Zoom call and I'm enjoying the short-lived power of some sort of personal agenda and not realizing that the fruits of the Spirit need to be on display at work too. Am I working as unto Christ and not unto men? Because Christ is my boss. How many people see a bright light at work through me? The workplace is where pride and selfish ambition flourish unusually well. Like this quote from Thomas Aquinas, pride is an excessive desire for one's own excellence, leading to misery. So true. The other issue uh, there it shows up is in the universal church. I'm talking specifically about the numerous sexual abuse scandals and power abuse situations that have hit so many ministries. I would name just a few. The Catholic Church, the Southern Baptist Convention, Large churches like Hillsong and Mars Hill or ministries like Ravi Zacharias. Can you see how this plays out? You've got a leader in power driving an organization to do good things. They're doing it. They're saving people. They're expanding the ministry. They're helping people with their faith. But when a leader has a moral failure and they don't confess and others cover up, it's clear that their loyalties have shifted to worldly outcomes. There's a combination of fear and greed underpinned by pride that sinks in and people being abused, disproportionately women and children, are scarred and deeply hurt for life. And once the cycle of cover-up happens, it gets even harder to fix. This is a sin that has to be rooted out, an example where worldly ambition can take over for spiritual discipline, even in the church. I love John Mark Homer, and he has written several books. In his book, Live No Lies, listen how he summarizes Satan's strategy. A couple sentences. The devil's goal is first to isolate us, then implant in our minds deceitful ideas that play to our disordered desires, which we feel comfortable with because they are normalized by the status quo of our society. Specifically, he lies about who God is, who we are, and what the good life is, with an aim to undermine our trust in God's love and wisdom. His intent is to get us to seize autonomy from God 
and we define good and evil for ourselves, thereby leading to ruin our souls and our society. Three tests, physical needs and pleasures, adoration from others, and power and control. All right, third point, we're going to wrap this up fairly quickly here. How does our ultimate hero save us? Number one, Jesus' soul was saturated with spirit and scripture. Look how he responds all three times. It is written, it is written, it is written. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Now he's using the resources that every believer has. It's not just him as a Messiah. He had five things, and if you like a formula, these are the five things that I see. He had a faith. In God's character, he trusted his promises. He believed in God the Father. Two, his identity was in being God's son, or for us as adopted sons or daughters. He believed it. Third, he knew the scripture inside and out, backwards and forwards. No scroll, no mobile app, nothing. He memorized this stuff, and he applied it, and he was ready. Four, constant prayer to discern God's will. He's praying all the time. And five, he had fasting and time alone with God. He was not distracted. He was game on. He was ready. That's it, though. Nothing more. We have given, we have all of those things, which I'll share about in a second. And we can find comfort. Ephesians 6 talks about the full armor of God. I won't go into it, but all of the tools are sort of reflected there. And this is where Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8.3 in the first um, response. Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus knows God is looking for humility and trust and obedience. 1 Corinthians 10 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. We have everything we need to pursue righteousness and turn away from trusting the world. So point two, how else did he solidify this for us? He died on the cross to make the win permanent. Look how Jesus commands the end of this episode. He says, Satan, be gone. Get out of here. You're done. His power is greater, and Satan was forced to abandon. Now, this meant now Jesus was ready to move on to his ministry, which he knew meant preaching the gospel, healing the sick, dying on the cross, rising again on the third day, sending the Holy Spirit, establishing his church, and seating at the right hand of the throne of God. In some ways, victory was certain as a result of his victory in the desert. Hebrews 12 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy is set before him endured the cross, despising his shame and is seated at the right hand of God. Third way, final way, his spirit enables us to become like him daily for eternity. This wasn't Jesus saying, do this, try harder. Romans 8 says, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit of life is because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you more verses here. I love it. James 4, God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This is a promise. So encouraging. 
All right, last scripture reference, uh, Hebrews 4. Since then we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne room of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We need to have the confidence to attach ourselves to Jesus, to fix our eyes on him. And through the Holy Spirit, we have the full status, power, tools, and habits to withstand Satan and his demons. And that's why Jesus is for us our ultimate hero. All right, last quote. I love this from Oswald Chambers. This is how it summarizes sanctification, which is where we're going to end on. Sanctification means the impartation of the holy qualities of Jesus Christ to me. It is the gift of his patience, love, holiness, faith, purity, and godliness that is exhibited in and through every sanctified soul. Sanctification is not drawing from Jesus the power to be holy. It is drawing from Jesus the very holiness that was exhibited in him and that he now exhibits in me. Sanctification is an impartation, not an imitation. Imitation is something altogether different. The perfection of everything is in Jesus Christ, and the mystery of sanctification is that all perfect qualities of Jesus are at my disposal. Consequently, I slowly but surely begin to to live a life of inexpressible order, soundness, and holiness kept by the power of God. By the way, how the story end? Verse 11. We'll end here. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is exactly how God wanted it to end. And if you look here, Jesus got the very three things he needed, and he got the very three things that he was tempted by. The angels came and they gave him food, so they met all of his physical needs. They gave him assurance from the Father, That was God's approval. And of course, they gave him worship, power acknowledging him as a true king. The angels indeed fulfilled the promise in Psalm 91, but not on Satan's terms, on God's terms. In every temptation and in all our decisions, it comes down to this question. Who will you trust? God, the Father who loves you, or Satan, the liar who hates you? A true hero is someone who uses their power to help others and is someone so cool and so amazing that we deeply want to be more like them. And we have no better example than Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word and your goodness. We're grateful for the way that you love us despite ourselves. And we pray, Lord, that the word today would plant seeds for growth. And we are asking, Lord, for your spirit to help us sanctify ourselves so we become more like Christ. Continue to be honored by our worship now. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen.